Hello everyone and welcome back to Into the Dark with Leah. My name's Mahalia. And now I'm sure we've all heard your friends are a reflection of you or birds of a feather flock together. Okay. And today's story is the perfect reflection of how those you choose to associate with um can permanently alter the course of your life. Now, today's story is about Shantae Mallard. Um, And, you know, I know the saying birds of a feather feather flock together has a bit of a negative connotation, but I mean, it's negative. It could be negative or positive. In the situation where you're hanging around motivated individuals who are career driven, who are trying to reach their goals in life and aspire to do more um, and just grow then, you know, you're probably going to do the same things if you're hanging around people who are, you know, low vibrational or who don't have such high aspirations in life, you're probably going to uh, become comfortable and settled in your situation. If you're hanging around people who are like engaging in illegal or dangerous behaviors, then you're probably going to end up in the same situation as well. If you don't have the will, the drive, and just like the um, overall solid morals to not engage in those activities, you're going to try it. And that could negatively impact your life. And that's what ended up happening to Shantae. Now, her parents, James and Dorothy Mallard, were loving, doting, supportive, and they tried to give their children the best opportunities possible. Her father was a truck driver. Her mother was a stay-at-home mom. She has two older siblings, Marcus and James Jr. Marcus is seven years older than her, and her brother James Jr. is 12. She was raised in Fort Worth, Texas, born June of 1976, into a loving household. Um, growing up, she was in the Girl Scouts, um, and as well as she uh, was also in the choir at church, um, along with the rest of her family. Her mom, Dorothy, sang in the choir. Her father played the baritone. She played the piano as well as the baritone. Um, was a bit of a daddy's girl, of course, because she's the baby girl. She's the youngest and the only girl. By some accounts, many would say that Shantae was a bit spoiled. Um, their parents, like as they got older, of course, and in their teenage years, they had them set up savings accounts because they wanted to give their children the best life possible. So in sending them out into the world, they would be somewhat prepared. So when their parents would get like their tax refunds and things like that, they would give their children a portion of it and be like, hey, you saved this. But for the most part, their parents provided everything they needed to, you know, so they can care for themselves. So any money that the children made or were given, they were saying, hey, save this. So in that time when they're released out into the world, they have a foot to stand on. Okay. Um, Shantae went on to actually graduate early in December of 74 from high school. She was supposed to graduate um, in 75, but she did really, really well and managed to graduate a little bit early. Um, so during that time, in between her early graduation and then going to college, she was working at Burger King, IHOP, and a couple other places to save up some money. Then she went on to Perry View A&M um, University, which is in Perry View, Texas. When she got to college, she started doing a little bit of everything. You know, she's exposed to the drinking, smoking, 
And uh, her particular case, she was more um, into smoking. So she was into weed and things like that. And um, she ended up flunking out her first semester of school. Now, she ends up back home with her parents. And she's like, well, you know, what am I going to do? She's still working at Burger King. And she's like, well, I don't want to be here for forever. And, (laughs) of course, she's with her parents. And they're looking at her like, well, what are you going to do? You can't be here for forever. And they gave her the ability to grow and like, you know, have the best chances in life. And she's like kind of squandering it at this point. So then Shantae decides to get her CNA's license because she's like, well, that would give her the ability to make a lot more money to be able to support herself. And, um, from there, she could go on to nursing because right now she's not really looking to go back to college. That's not working for her. And, you know, she wants to just grow. Um, so after getting her CNA's license, she went on to work at Broadway Plaza Healthcare Center. Now, at Broadway Plaza Healthcare Center, she was an awesome employee. She did everything she was supposed to, and she was able to save up some money and bought her first home in 1997 for roughly $10,000. So she saved up $8,000 on her own, and her parents provided her with the remaining two. Um, The house was kind of a fixer-upper, of course. It was only $10,000, even for 1997. Come on now, that's a steal. Um, So she managed to save up some more money to remodel it at the age of 19. I can only imagine buying my own home at 19. Granted, I've moved out, but buying your your own home is a whole different ballgame. So she did that, um, and she was just out living her life. You know, she bought herself a car. She was doing adult things. Now, after this, she moved on to a different nursing home and, you know, she was still working and supporting herself with no problem. And she goes out one day to get her hair done. And that's when she meets Talisi Fry. Now, Talisi is a hairdresser um, as well as a CNA. So they managed to, you know, click um, up, like bond over their careers and things like that. Talisi um, was around the same age, I think maybe around two, three years older than um, Chantel at the time. And she had been recently like going through a divorce. So she was looking to get back out there, have fun, experience life. You know, they're young 20s and they just want to go out there and have fun. So that's what they started doing. They were going to the clubs. They were smoking. They were drinking. They were just experiencing life. Now, one of their mutual friends was um, Miranda Daniels. They had on and off bouts of friendship, but, you know, they were still cool. They were still party buddies, right? Now, the year is 1999, you know, right before the world was supposed to end. And Shantae is 23 years old. She has her own home. She has her own car. She's out doing her thing. Um, She does still go over for family dinners and meet with her family and whatnot. But during the year of 1999, her parents started noticing that she wasn't really coming around as much. And then her mother, Dorothy, who was, like, especially involved in her children's lives, um... She was noticing that her daughter was smoking. She she sometimes would come over a little inebriated. Um, and, you know, she just didn't like the people that Shantae was choosing to associate with. She, quite frankly, she felt that tea was bad news. 
And, you know, I feel the same way. <laughs> um, so Shantae, she was out partying, drinking, and all that good stuff. Um, sometimes she might go to work a little inebriated, mostly from smoking marijuana. Sometimes she would smoke, go to work. Um, later on, she'll go to tell the story because she worked as a CNA in nursing homes and the media was kind of crucifying her, um, due to the fact that like, you know, so you're smoking and then you're going to like handle patients and things like that. And so she described it as like, no, I would smoke like early in the morning. So essentially saying that, well, I wasn't like high, high when I went to work, I was just chill you know (laughs) whatever but essentially she would be out partying the night before get up go to work repeat the cycle you know and now in between the time of 1999 and 2000 that was just like what she did pretty consistently and you know her parents noticed she was coming over less and less and they didn't just really they really just didn't like the life she was leading but you know she's grown and what can they do now, flash forward to October 26th of 2001, all right, Shantae, T, um, and then a couple other friends, they're out at a party, and Shantae meets up with T at her house, and they end up having one drink at T's house, you know, uh t is like well i have this x pill ecstasy and they were like well how about we split it so they end up splitting the ecstasy pill you know shantae takes hers t takes hers and then it ends up going to this next party at you know a bar um and now at the bar they meet up with vaughn now vaughn if you were to like read more into this case his name is actually Cleet Jackson, and he says, like, I don't go by Vaughn. Nobody calls me Vaughn. That's not my name. That's not even my nickname. Da, 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 da. But multiple people, even when you look up the story and you watch it on, like, court TV, they call him Vaughn. So we're just going to call him Vaughn. But just know that his real name is actually Cleet Jackson. Now, at this party, um, he is there, and he sees Shantae. He's like, um what's wrong? Are you okay? And she's just like, oh, I don't feel well. You know, she's drunk. She's had a couple drinks and she, you know, she has taken this ecstasy pill and, you know, it seems to have hit her heart. Now, um, it's kind of debated whether or not she has taken one before, but it said like in a couple of the stories, oh, she's taken ecstasy before and took a full pill. Um, this is what T is saying. Like I gave her a full pill before and she said it didn't, it didn't do anything. And now at this point she's taken half a pill and you know, she's really like messed up. I didn't expect it to be like this, but nonetheless, they're partying, they're going about the night. Um, Vaughn ends up taking Shantae's keys so she can't leave because, of course, she's inebriated. He doesn't want her, he doesn't want her to get hurt. He doesn't want her to hurt anyone else, things like that. So he takes her keys, and then the intention is for her to go, like, home with him. Not to his house, but they're going to go back to her house in her car. Now, I think I should give a bit more detail about Shantae and Vaughn's relationship. Um, They were more just like hookup buddies, you know. They call him her boyfriend, but they weren't really boyfriend and girlfriend. They were very much on and off, sometimes on, and they'll be on hot and heavy, sometimes off. He's back with his baby mama, and he's just doing his own thing. 
Um, Vaughn does have a record. You know, at the time when all of this takes place, he is on probation, um, has a couple families, things like that. But they liked each other. Things were going good. Um, during this time, they were off. So Vaughn is planning to go home uh, with her. Then he meets this other woman while they're at the club. And, you know, he ends up going home with this other woman. Now Vaughn ends up giving, like, I guess the keys back to Shantae. And um, her... Like, Shantae and T are supposed to be going, like, essentially back to T's house. Then Shantae is going to go back to her house. When the club closes at 2 a.m., they weren't ready to leave. So, everyone just kind of migrated out to the parking lot. And they were they were congregating out there still, you know, maybe finishing their drinks, smoking, and just relaxing with everyone. Um, And, you know, whatever. It's a parking lot party. <laughs> and then um they actually leave the club probably around 3 a.m. or so and they head back to T's house. Now, when they went to leave the club, Shantae got in the car and made it maybe 50 feet. And Shantae's like, uh, I don't know if I can drive. T's like, yeah, you probably should drive because she was already up on the curb, almost hit something. T's like, yep, you can get out now. So they end up switching seats. T drives back to her house and she, you know, she's going to go get in the shower uh, because she has uh, her little boo thing coming over. And she asks Shantae, like, hey, are you good? And she's like, yeah, I'm good. Shantae gets out of the passenger seat, walks around the car to the driver's seat. T thinks she's all right. Shantae's like, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to go home. Um, I mean, even later on, Shantae was like, she did feel off. Um, but you know, still, she definitely felt inebriated, but she didn't want to, you know, bother T because she had company coming over and she didn't want to, you know, essentially bog her down, you know, cock block, like, oh, can I crash at your place or anything like that? I mean, it is what it is. Where I come from, if you're that inebriated, your friends are going to make you stay. So in this situation, um, her friends are definitely assholes i mean vaughn he is less culpable because of course he left already he knew that she was going to be with t and t was definitely not as inebriated as shantae so in this situation shantae should have been like yeah you stay here even if shantae has to sleep in her car um t should have done something and not let her leave but she did because you know she had her own things going on so now Shantae hops on the road to head home. And when she's going around this like roundabout, she's not quite on the highway. I think that's like the expressway of sorts. Um, and she's going around this little roundabout and it's kind of dark, you know, it's three in the morning and she hits something. Glass goes flying through the windshield. She's scared. And turns out she hit a person. She doesn't stop. She just keeps going and drives home with this individual in her windshield. Embedded in her windshield, part of his body, like, in her passenger seat. Now, she gets home. She goes and, like, puts her car in the, in the garage, shuts the door, and she's, like, 
freaking out. She's crying hysterically. She looks at the man. He is still making noise and is clearly alive. Now, turns out she ended up hitting Gregory Biggs, all right? Gregory Biggs was at the time a 37-year-old man experiencing homelessness. Um, He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder as well as schizophrenia. Um, but that is actually, actually not the reason he was homeless. It is because of essentially his kind heart. Um, so during his life, he ended up getting married and was married for quite some time. He had a son, <clears throat> but they got divorced. Um, he ended up, after he was diagnosed, they ended up getting divorced. Apparently it took a toll on their relationship. Now, after that, he had a girlfriend who fell on hard times she lost her car and she needed money to you know finance her life again and because of his kind heart he loaned her or essentially gave her the money to get back on her feet now he was a mason and worked in construction and his truck was his life now after loaning her this money it was essentially at his own expense because at that point he couldn't afford his lifestyle his you know basic necessities and he fell behind on his truck payments and it was a pretty much pretty much a trickle down effect once he couldn't afford his truck then he couldn't afford his home then he was evicted and now he's homeless um and when this story initially came out i mean it was just painted as oh homeless man gets hit on a highway um and it was very much callous i mean i grew up my mom always said don't say homeless person that's demeaning, that's taken away their humanity, they're still a person, an an individual, so it's a person, you identify the person, this man, Gregory Biggs, experiencing homelessness, because that's what it is, it's not homeless man, like, no one's gonna put housed person, like, it's just this person happens to be experiencing homelessness, So that's just, I mean, to humanize them in a way, because those circumstances were unfortunate and uh, in a way out of his control because he was trying to get back on his feet. He was bouncing um, through careers. He worked as a school bus driver and, you know, he was doing a little bit better, um, but he ended up losing that job for um, an unknown reason. Could have possibly been due to his mental illness at that time um, if anyone is familiar with schizophrenia, like if he was on his medicine, things were going good. If he wasn't, then, you know, things could be going awry. Not that he was anyway violent to anyone. It's just that sometimes his behavior could be a bit erratic. And, you know, when it comes to keeping up a job, I mean, it's necessary to be fairly consistent as far as you're uh, coming into work and things like that. So they can depend on you. So I do think, um, with him experiencing homelessness and then trying to keep up employment along with his mental illness and having to be medicated kind of put him in an unfortunate situation. Okay. So now we're going to go back to Shantae hitting Mr. Biggs, him being embedded in her windshield and now in her garage, still in her car. She's freaking out. She's crying hysterically. She looks at him. She says, I'm sorry. And then she, goes into her house because the door to the garage is in her kitchen so she goes into her kitchen closes the door and she calls t now mind you t has a cell phone shantae didn't have a cell phone so she goes and uses her house phone to call t she's crying hysterically and she's like t i've been in an accident 
T comes to Shantae's house and Shantae is still like crying hysterically. She can't figure out what's going on with her. And then she's like, I've been in an accident. I've been in an accident. And that's pretty much like all she's getting out of her. And so T then walks through her house opens the kitchen door to go into the garage and sees the man still embedded in his windshield. Now they both knew he was still alive because he was groaning, but he was in horrific condition. Later on, it is said by the medical examiner that um, Mr. Biggs, his left leg was nearly amputated, only held on by mere pieces of muscle tissue. His right foot was also um, damaged. His right leg had um, broken bones. His right arm had broken bones. Um, His scalp just had like a surface, uh, what is it? Kind of scar and a little bit of a bleeding underneath the scalp, but it wasn't too much. Mainly the damage was to his extremities, like his arms, his legs, and like his pants were mangled. Um, His jacket and like the coverings he had on were kind of lifted up and by this time he had slid through the windshield a bit more and his hand ended up in the passenger side like door um compartment and like just imagine his head was kind of like down where the foot pedals would be if he were on the driver's side and his back was like kind of on the passenger seat so um t is just like yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with this. So Shantae and T ended up leaving her house. Shantae decides she wants to go out and look for Vaughn because she's freaking out. She doesn't know what to do. And, you know, she's just trying like to get him to help her. So now her and T are running around Fort Worth looking for Vaughn, going who knows where, honestly. And then finally, T is like, yeah, I'm not about to do this, girl. It's still the crack of dawn. I'm not about to be driving around essentially in the middle of the night looking for some man. It's not worth it. So then T takes Shantae back to her house. When Shantae gets back to the house, she ends up calling um Vaughn aka Cleet and then he comes over to the house he's trying to figure out like you know what's going on are you okay like what's the matter and Shantae is still crying hysterically they go into the garage and um Cleet is still trying to figure out like you know what's happening he goes to open the driver's side door and as soon as he opens it he sees the body And at that point, he's pissed because he's like, why the hell did you call me? First off, you know I'm on parole and you should just call the police. Like, why why am I even here right now? Why are you even doing this? Now, mind you, on top of that, yeah, she could just call the police and her brother was a firefighter. Yeah, let that sink in. Her eldest brother was a firefighter, and where she had her accident, her brother was around a mile away, if that. So, <clears throat> Cleet's pissed. He's like, why'd you call me? What am I doing here? You should have just called the police. And now I'm in this. So, since they're figure- like freaking out, um, they're like, you know, we gotta do something about the body. And the initial like thought was 
burn it. But Vaughn was like, no, we're not going to burn it. This man needs a funeral. His family needs to be able to find him and bury him. So from there, Vaughn calls his cousin, um, Herbert Tyrone Cleveland, to help him in getting rid of the body. Um, But of course, whose car are they going to take? Neither of them had cars. So then they call up T. And T's like, hell no, you can't use my car. I don't want to be a part of this. You got this dead white man. And yeah, I'm not, this is none of my business. I'm going to stay out of it. Um, My name's Bennett. I ain't in it. So then they call, well, they don't have to call necessarily. They just hit up Vaughn's baby mama. And they use Vaughn's baby mama's truck to transport his body to Cobb Park. Now, Cobb Park in Fort Worth is not really the best park. It's known for abandoned cars and its fair share of dead bodies. Now, they when um Cleet and Tyrone go to transport the body, they take a blanket, they lay it out on the garage floor, and then they put his body in it and like tie it at four corners and I just imagine that, like, as they gathered it all in the middle, kind of like a dumpling, and tied it. You get what I'm saying? Just push them all together, and then tied them like that. And then they lifted him up and put him in the truck. Now, from there, they end up taking his body to Cobb Park, took him off the blanket, and kind of just, like, rolled his body onto the grass and whatnot. Now, because of the accident, and, of course, I told you, like, one of his legs, his left leg, was pretty much amputated, um, his pants were down, and it was, like, exposing his genitalia and whatnot. And out of all things, you know, like, Cleet, he might have got into some shit and, you know, had a record and whatnot, but he was still a fairly stand-up individual. He had, you know, some kind of morals, especially not wanting to, you know, burn his body so his family could have some closure and bury him. When they went to place his body there and, like, leave it because he was exposed, he kind of just, like, took the man's jacket to cover him up to give him some sort of decency so when his body was was found, he wouldn't just be, like, exposed to the world. Now, later on trial, because of, like, where they left him, it's a park. Children could come upon his body and the the um like attorneys asked him like so weren't you afraid that children were going to see his body he was like yeah but like people still needed to find him essentially it was a in a way it was a chance they were willing to take of course they were hoping children wouldn't find him that's why they gave him some sort of decency but he was still in a location where he would be easily found and he still had his identification on him so he could be identified and they could call his next of kin which would have been his essentially like his ex-wife slash son. Um, and at the time, his son was in high school. Now, from there, they take the baby mama's car and they go to the car wash. At the car wash, they get rid of the blanket. They're vacuuming the car, scrubbing it and whatnot. And T and Shantae, they're both there while everyone's like cleaning out the car. Then Sha- I'm sorry. Then T leaves because, of course, she's saying she doesn't want any part of this. But she seems to be everywhere when things are taking place. But nonetheless, once Shantae gets back to her home and she sees her car, she's still distraught. And she can't bear to stay there. So she ends up staying with um, T because she's just a wreck. You know, she can't go to work. She's still drinking. She's still smoking and just trying to drink her problems away. 
Now, what messed everything up a little bit was the fact that a week after this incident, they went back to the same bar they were at the night this accident occurred, which kind of just like struck the jury like, ma'am, you're saying you're distraught, but you back at the bar, you back smoking, drinking. I don't know. I see both sides of it. Like if you had this traumatic event, either it's going to scare you straight, but in her situation, I think it just scared her deeper into a hole essentially. And she just tried to drown her like emotions and sorrows in her smoking and drinking. So she did that. And she was honestly just like telling T, I think I want to turn myself in. Right. So because she had fallen behind on her utilities, her power got cut off. And the night they ended up going to the bar, um, she met up with this man and brought him back to her house where she had no utilities. I said that right. She had no power and she was still doing it in the house. We're going to skip over that. <clears throat> Now, essentially the next day, because of course, this all took place on like the evening of the 25th slash crack of dawn 26. His body's dumped on the 26th early in the morning. His body, Mr. Biggs's body is found on October 27th, 2001. Um, during this time in between like the body being found and then the police actually figuring out what happened. Shantae is staying with um, T, just feeling sorrowful, essentially. Um, and now it's not until the police receive a tip from one of the mutual friends of T and Chantel that they actually get like a huge break in the case. One evening, Shantae and good old Miranda, I mentioned her in the beginning about their on and off friendship, they had a spat, right? <clears throat> and um, essentially that just like deaded their friendship. Now, before that, T had told Miranda all about what happened and that, you know, essentially Shantae had gotten into an accident. She hit this white man, killed him. They got rid of the body. So after this spat where this, you know, all comes out, Miranda goes home to her mom and she tells her what he told her. And she's like, can you believe this? And her mom is like, yeah, you need to call the police. Like, you, you need to turn her in. That's not okay. It's the, like, she needs to pay for her actions. So uh, Miranda calls the police and says, hey, you know that gentleman that you found in the park that you believe to have been hit by a car? I know who did it. It's uh, Shantae Mallard. So now the police go to serve a search warrant um, at Shantae's residence and they find the car with, you know, pieces of his hair and his blood still in the, like, headliner. Um, some of the seats were missing because, you know, they tried to get rid of them and get rid of the evidence because, of course, she thought, oh, um, I'll just keep the car and just redo it. I'll do redo the seats and whatnot. So some of the seats were out back, specifically the passenger seat was in her backyard, partially burnt. Um, but they still impounded it so they could do like forensic testing. Wasn't much testing back in the early 2000s, but so, you know, they could examine it. 
And of course, by this point, her windshield was essentially gone. Like a grown man had gone through it. So it was pretty much gone. And the officer asked her like, hey, do you want to talk to me about what happened? And Shantae, she's just sad, but it's like, yeah, yeah, I'll go, I'll do it. Um, Not fighting them in any way. Of course, because, you know, we said that she wanted to turn herself in to begin with. So when she gets to the actual police station, she's talking to them and um, she's telling them what happened. And the police officer is writing up her statement. And um, then he asks her, like, is this okay? And she's just like, yeah, she doesn't read it. She's just like, yeah, this is what happened. It's fine. And during that time when she's telling the story, she's like, can I, can I call my brother? She doesn't ask for a lawyer. She's just like, hey, can I call my brother? And of course they're going to try to sweet talk their way around it because she's talking. They're going to try to keep her talking and you know, they don't have to stop for her to call her brother. So they keep talking. They take down her statement. She signs it. It's certified, whatever. Um, and then on February 26th, she is arrested. Now on March 6th, after talking to the medical examiner about Biggs's in- injuries, authorities arrested Mallard on the charge of murder. Uh, because after the first time she was arrested, she was released on bond. It was a low bond. I think it was around um, 10000 or so. The second time, it was increased, um, and she just stayed in prison until it was time for her to go to trial. Now, on April 25th of 2002, um, Mallard was indicted on charges of murder and tampering with evidence. And then in September of 2002, Tyrone, Herbert Tyrone Cleveland, the cousin of Vaughn, you know, who helped dispose of the body, pled guilty to tampering with evidence and was sentenced to nine years in prison as part of his plea bargain to testify at Mallard's trial. Now, on January 8th, 2003, Cleet um, pleads guilty to tampering with evidence. He ended up being sentenced to 10 years at prison, um, in prison, sorry, in exchange for him testifying at Mallard's trial as well. Now, it wasn't until June 23rd, 2003, that Mallard's trial begins and she pleads guilty to tampering with evidence but not guilty to murder essentially like her um defense's argument was that well you know she did hit him but it wasn't like he died immediately um and of course she did help with disposing of the body and essentially tampering with evidence in that regard but that, that honestly that's just how they were trying to spin it but of course had she just like called the police or um you know medical professionals at the time when she hit him it was like said he probably would have survived um or if he had died at the scene it just would have been vehicular homicide but of course the rest of her actions it led down this road now, while at trial, Talicia is on the stand, and she's been given full immunity, so she will testify at this trial and, you know, tell the truth, even though she ended up lying a couple times so she wouldn't get herself in trouble. And the police actually have to take her to a polygrapher to make sure, like, what she was saying was actually truthful, because, of course, they don't want to put her on the stand, and she's lying to two grand juries. Like, no. 
that was a no-go um but of course during this whole time there was a media frenzy it was kind of like a trial by media quite honestly because good old miranda was blabbing her mouth and she was telling blatant lies about what had happened and you know um it kind of ruined the, the public's opinion of Mallard. So, you know, there had to be character witnesses like her parents to step up because, oh, good old Miranda, if you listen to her, she was saying that Mallard was essentially a cold, hard, criminal, killer, drug addict, alcoholic. And that after she, you know, hit Mr. Biggs and closed her, like, um, garage and everything up, she invited a man over and had sex while this man was dying in her garage, which was a total lie. She also said that Mallard was going around to parties, laughing and joking, saying how she hit this white man also a lie but guess what when it's time to act what was actually time to face the music and go on trial and say all these things guess who wasn't there miranda who was there her mama so mama was on the stand just to verify the fact that it was miranda's voice on the 911 call essentially stating like hey i know who killed mr biggs yada 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 when Cleet was on the stand, he was essentially testifying, like, when they were at the party, yes, I saw that she was drunk, and I, you know, I asked her what was wrong, and I knew how, what she had taken, um, testifying, like, yes, I helped get rid of the body, um, why'd you put him in the park? Well, because essentially I wanted him to be found. And then the prosecutor was trying to show Cleet a photo of, you know, Mr. Big's body where it was placed. He was like, hey, I just want to verify that this is the condition that you left the body in. And if you were to look at the court TV episode, he's just like looking in the total opposite direction. The, the um prosecutor is on his right and he's looking to the left like up towards the ceiling and so he's like hey can you just verify that this is the condition that you left the body in i want to insert exhibit da, 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 da. and he's like or you could just look in that direction and the whole time cleat's just like yeah that's it yeah yeah so then he takes it away he's just like well whatever so they verify that that is the condition that you know the body was left in and everything um and they just go through the trial so at the end of everything, jury goes to, de to deliberate on June 26, 2003. They came back within an hour. And both the prosecutor and the um, defendant's uh, team were kind of up in the air about how this all would turn out. Because both of them had solid cases, quite honestly, in the sense that showing uh, Mallard's character, because she wasn't a cold-hearted criminal or anything like that. She was genuinely just a woman afraid in that situation. But what was essentially the nail in her coffin was the fact that she had medical experience as a CNA. She drove past, they counted at least seven pay phones on the way home, and she had the ability to call her brother um, just to ask for assistance. She could have called the firehouse, or she could have driven to said firehouse where her own brother worked, and she did it. She had multiple opportunities to get assistance for this man, even if he didn't, uh, like, you know, survive, there were opportunities. She also could have rendered aid in some way. So that is essentially what ended up being the nail in her coffin. And she was found guilty of murder 
as well as found guilty of failure to stop and rendered aid, which is a sentence maximum of five years, and tampering with evidence. Now, on June 27th, the jury sentences Mallet to 50 years in prison for murder and additional 10 years for tampering with evidence, and she's to serve those sentences concurrently. So, of course, she is serving a total of 50 years in jail, and she will be eligible for for parole in 25 years, which is coming up on, um, in 2027, she'll be eligible for parole. Would I parole her? I mean, yes, because I don't believe that she is an awful person. She was very remorseful, even when she got on the stand. Um, she stated, like, you know, I ruined people's lives, and, like, you know, you can't get that back, and that she's truly sorry. Um, the son even stated that he forgave her, because, of course, you do understand in that situation, she's under the influence of alcohol. You know, from the outside looking in, well, under the influence of alcohol and so many other substances. But thinking about what we would do in that situation, you're like, yeah, I probably would have done da 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 Well, just think. She was high on weed. She had alcohol. And she had ecstasy in her system. Granted, like, well, she drove past several pay phones and businesses that were open where she could have called for help. She went immediately to find safety. She's inebriated. And she's scared, most likely. There's someone in her windshield. They're injured. Like, regardless of her career, there are people who are trained for certain situations. And when they are the actually, like, the ones in danger, you're not always going to be in calm. So what did she do? She saw safety in her home. She went there. Now, once she got home and then she called all the wrong people, definitely that's when everything went wrong because I like I understand initially on the road but you got home you knew this man was still alive you could have called 911 you could have called your brother then but she didn't ask to call her brother until she was at the police station which I kind of feel was that she just wasn't ready to face the music um in that situation because you know her family, they seem to have swooped in and been her saviors in many situations, like when she had fallen behind on her utilities. And I think because she has such a privileged life in this situation, like she just expected to people for people to save her. And that's why she ended up calling Cleet. And, you know, Cleet got other people to try to fix this for her. But no, like life doesn't work like that. Um, and I think with the amount of time she served, even if they don't give her parole at the 2027 um, one, I think maybe. 30 years I think 30 35 years will be pretty good you know she's an okay age she'll be around like in her 50s late 50s stuff like that you know her life isn't completely gone and you know hopefully she would have learned her lesson by then but um yeah just be mindful of who you surround yourself with because I really don't believe she was an awful person you know she was raised by a great family she appeared to have like good morals and things like that she was just being young and dumb out here experimenting, doing stuff, and put herself in a dangerous situation and ended up ending someone else's life. But um, that is today's story. I thoroughly hope everyone enjoyed it. And, you know, I hope to see you, well, see, here. You know what I mean. Sometime soon, I will be back. And I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Bye-bye.